ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to Extra here on RN with me, Nick Bryan. First, an issue here at home, rural and regional banking. We live in an age, of course, when you can perform your personal banking in the palm of your hand. Online transactions mean that many of us rarely visit a bricks and mortar bank. But what if you live in a rural or regional community and even an occasional visit to your local branch is no longer an option? What if all the banks have shut their doors and left town? Since 2020, it's estimated that the big four banks have shut down some 650 branches, many of them in remote communities. And these regional bank closures have been the subject of a federal Senate inquiry, which is expected to report later in the year. Uh, With us to discuss this problem is the mayor of Cloncurry up there in northern Queensland, Greg Campbell, Wendy Streets, who is the secretary of the Financial Workers Union, and Senator Gerard Rennick, who is the Liberal National Party senator for Queensland. Welcome to the program. Program, all of you. Good morning. Thank Good morning. you. Greg, if I could start with you, paint us a picture. Uh, what would it be like in your community if you didn't have a bank? Uh, it would be very difficult to sum it up quickly, but, you know, we're in a good position. We've still got uh, the National Bank and Westpac and our local Rabo branch, uh, but we faced the Westpac branch closing earlier in the year and that's how we got involved in this movement and how we ended up presenting evidence at the Senate inquiry. Uh, Give us a sense of the remoteness of your communities. If those banks did shut down, how far would people have to travel just to do sort of basic banking services? Uh, At least 120 kilometres one way. So, you know, you're looking at 240 kilometres round trip to go to Mount Isa. And I understand that, you know, transporting large amounts of money is is problematic. I mean, some people, I understand it, would would need to have armoured security vans and and that kind of protection. Oh, to minimise the risk, uh, definitely you'd have to look at that. And even though we're using less cash, there are still a number of businesses uh, that have given us their evidence that they're still up to... 30 and 40% cash on some fairly large turnovers. So it's still an important part of the economy and still a service that's needed. And as I understand it, there, there are some sort of community events there that, that need big cash floats, sometimes as much as sort of $50,000, dollars $100,000. That's the sort of thing you need a, a local bank for, presumably. Oh, definitely. You know, we've host some of the biggest regional events in Western Queensland between our show and Camp Draft and Rodeo, uh, to name just a few. And even the size of the floats that they're needing, they still need to give the current branches notice because they just don't hold that sort of cash on hand all the time. But to add you know, 240 kilometres and becoming a minor customer rather than a a fairly significant customer, just makes that even more onerous. Wendy, you're the Secretary of the Financial Sectors Union um, and up there in Queensland as well. How big a problem is this from your perspective? It's a huge problem and it's been going on now for um, 
well and truly over a decade um, and we've been trying to get governments of all persuasions to focus on this. Um, banking, as far as we're concerned, is an essential service. We were named in, as an essential service as soon as the pandemic hit and our members had to go to work every day and keep banking available to Australians um, where they were. And we don't understand why we can't get a government to actually put restrictions on our banks to make sure that they stay and provide their services for regional and remote Australians. We, we invited the Australian Banking Association onto the program. Unfortunately, nobody was available to speak to us. But, but Wendy, I think what they would say that um, in some places, very few people are actually using these banks. Um, in some instances, it's, it's as few as, as 10 people a day. They, they would say they've become uneconomical. What, what would you say to that? What we've seen with the development of technology, and we should be making technology work for us in these instances, not against us, is um, we've got multiple branches around, and in fact, every major bank has a model where staff can be both in, in the branch and serving customers in the branch, or then they can revert to um, serving customers either online or over the phone. So there is plenty of work to do. The technology is there. And what happens often in towns at the moment is they shut their doors and the staff stay in the building and actually do over the phone work. So with a bit more thinking and a bit more planning, they could easily keep these services in Australia, even though the foot traffic has diminished because there is an element of... Um, of customers who actually just can't get that 120 kilometres away or 200 kilometres away to do their banking. Well, let's talk to Senator Gerard Rennick. You've been on this Senate inquiry. Uh, give us a feel uh, for some of the community concerns that you've been hearing during this, this, this process. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Look, the community service uh, concerns are, are, are primary centred around the fact that banking is an essential service. And yes, while it's true that a lot of the transactions can be done online, it's not true that the banks aren't making money in these regions. They still make the same amount of money they did uh, because those areas are very wealthy. And if you take Cloncurry, for example, it's a very rich agricultural and mining uh, community. Uh, it brings in a lot of money for the country. So if the banks want to charge interest on these people's uh, loans and everything for 365 days a year, I think it's only fair that they keep their branches open for 360 well for the you know 250 working weeks of the year so um and it's interesting to note this week that i know that the cba ceo brought you know ordered his staff back to work because he said that people work better when they work face to face and yes while you can do a lot of transactions online when it comes to things like services uh cash handling uh and even little things like when if you're in a community group and you're on an executive and you have a change of executive at the agm every year You've got to go into that bank, you know, your local branch and, and sign up new signatures and be identified with your driver's licence. So those are the reasons why we need branches to remain open in the regions because as Wendy correctly identified, it is a, a, an essential service. Uh, and I think that, you know, banking banks have a social licence to uh, provide services to all people, to people across all communities in Australia, not just where, you know, it suits them to make more money. I was reading some of the testimony before the Senate inquiry, uh, a lot of concerns from elderly people, obviously, um, who would find it hard to make those kind of long journeys. Um, I also understand that 
one of the reasons why there's been an uptick in home ownership amongst First Nations Australians is is because of the relationships that have been forged over time with face-to-face contact in, in local banks. Well, that that's right. And this is something I don't actually understand why banks don't want to be have branches out in the regions because if you, you live in the region, you get to know the people better and, you know, you, you'll understand get a better understanding of their risk profile uh, and it's not the same I mean you know not that I've ever tried online dating but I can assure you that <laughs> most people would agree you'd rather have a face-to-face interaction and uh, because you you know you can read a lot more about a person well it's the same for in my view when it comes to lending uh, and if you've got people living in the communities they can assess assess the risk on local business local farms uh, you know they'll know what the the property market's doing in that particular uh, community so like I said, I just think that the banks have actually overreached on this from their own point, of, uh, just from their own shareholder interests as well. Greg, um, Jared made an important point there about the wealth of, of these communities. I thought there was an amazing illustration of that. Uh, I've heard of farmers flying their helicopters to, to parts of their land uh, where there is good digital reception so they can do their online banking. That That's a problem, right, that uh, a lot of digital banking isn't an option because of the the patchy wireless service oh yes it definitely has an impact uh and even if you have connection when you start if it drops out during your transactions that adds to a level of frustration and uh, unease so yeah there's a lot of factors one that i think is important to raise is as a local government and as a community member in a rural community, I can understand to some degree why the banks think they've got the right to look and think about closing branches because they look over the fence and see state government especially, but federal government as well, just sucking staff out of rural communities without question. And until our state and federal governments step up, you know, it's a bit... uh, Oh, it's a bit rich to expect to put a, a blanket expectation or a social licence on a private business when they don't do the same thing themselves. So I think the banks need to do more, uh, now, but our governments need to do more as well. Now, Westpac actually decided to shut its branch in Cloncurry. I, I understand you fought a rearguard action and, and managed to reverse that decision. Um, how did you win that battle? Uh, we... Firstly, they hadn't consulted with us, so you know we got senior executives' attention. And once they come to Cloncurry and sat down and had a conversation with us, uh, that was really meaningful, really insightful. So I think those senior managers, uh, senior executives, do get that they've got a a need to have a presence in areas. We saw it not just as good business for our community to have the branch stay but we saw it as good business for them to stay because as jared said this is such a rich and important area uh we've been mining and grazing cattle for over 150 years we're on the cusp of a whole new wave of copper gold uh, phosphate mines opening Uh, we're on the cusp of irrigated agriculture producing tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of more products for our domestic and international use. Uh, So it makes good business sense for banks to be here. 
Wendy, one thing the banks would say, I think, is that there are alternatives. They're not the only game in town. Um, you can do a lot of banking at Australia Post, for instance. What, what do you say to that? Well, our view is Australia Post is exactly what it says. It's Australia Post. It is not a bank. Its staff are not trained in banking. They're not trained in risk, in fraud, in in banking products. Um, the service that three of the big four have signed up to with Australia Post is no more than transaction, money in, money out. There are daily limits for both personal customers and business customers that are not sufficient for the day-to-day running, especially of small businesses in town. Um, There's a security risk. We spent decades back in the 80s and 90s um, fighting in in courts of law to ensure that the health and security of our members was... um, was increased with banking security and there is none of that in post office. So it would be shifting the risk um, of robberies and so forth, but also they're not staffed either. They're mum and dad businesses, um, most of them are franchises and at, at the bottom line, they're just not trained, skilled bankers. Jared, I think one idea that has been floated is is the creation of a public bank or, or the recreation of a public bank. The Commonwealth Bank, of course, was privatised during the Hawke-Keating years. What, what, what do you make of, of that sort of idea? Uh, look, I'm strongly in favour of that idea, actually. I, I think that uh, we've got a private uh, and public uh, health, edu- health and education sectors, and I think we should have the same with banking. I mean, the Commonwealth Bank, Bank with the Strength, was... Uh, something that I grew up with. I mean, my first account was with the CBA. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know why we can't have a public bank again, not just actually for uh, retail uh, lending either, but for business development and an infrastructure bank as well. Uh, and the other thing that we really could combine with that is another state government insurance office type procedure because there's a real issue with insurance uh, across the country as well, both, you know, in housing and business and especially in remote locations. So I don't know why we couldn't have a public bank uh, that also provided insurance uh, services as well, uh, and the profits from that can can effectively, uh, you know, go back into, say, business loans or lending to councils or something. But ideally, I think we've got a lot of work to do with monetary reform in this country, uh, and I think a public bank is a part of that solution. Well, it is a conversation that will go uh, on and on. You'll be reporting uh, later in the year. Thank you so much for joining us. Greg Campbell, the Mayor of Cloncurry, Wendy Streets, the Secretary of the Financial Workers' Union, and Senator Gerard Rennick, who is the Liberal National Party Senator for Queensland. Thank you all. Thank Thank you. Appreciate the time. Bye. Well, up next, into the world of Russia's youth. What you're listening to there is the soundtrack of Vladimir Putin's Russia, a jaunty and jingoistic anthem of the Russia Youth Army. These are young patriots aged 6 to 18 who undertake military manoeuvres, parades and patriotic history classes and then document it all on social media. It's a realm of pro-war hashtags, of ugly propaganda videos, of online trolls who attack opposition activists and anyone suspected of betraying the motherland. Ian Garner, a historian of Russian culture, has been interviewing young Russians shaped by the invasion of Ukraine and is the author of a new book, Z Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Ian, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. 
We heard there the Russian Youth Army, but it's worth saying what they actually look like. Red berets, red shirts. It's pretty chilling stuff. It is. Well, they do have this really distinctive appearance with this clean-cut uniform. It really, to me, calls to mind the youth movements of the 20th century, the Soviet pioneers, even, and this is an awkward comparison, I understand, even the Hitler Youth. We see this sort of cleanliness, harmonious, regimented appearance, taking kids in from anywhere in Russia, bringing them into the army and turning them into little uniformed soldiers. And we are talking about kids as young as six. And what we're seeing here is a mass mobilisation. I mean, the, the Russian state is aiming, I believe, to have more than three million children uh, as part of this movement. This is the plan. And we're still relatively speaking, in the early days of this movement, it was founded in 2016. But we've seen that the growth has really been explosive over the last few years, thanks to the state's very clever social media advertising and influencer campaigns, and also the sheer amount of money it's putting into this organization. It's putting in something like $80 million, that's US dollars a year right now. As of today, the membership stands at about 1.3 million, and that has expanded 300,000 over the last year alone. So while we're seeing millennials fleeing Russia en masse, we're seeing young people drawn into this army. And clearly the state has big plans for the next few years. Ian, you've spoke about the Z generation. In Russia, the letter Z means more than just a description of, of when you were born. It's almost become like the swastika, right? Well, the states whispered this symbol out of nothing and given it meaning. They did it extremely quickly at the start of the war when the plans that we've all heard about now to take Kiev in three days fell apart pretty quickly. The state realised this was a war that was going to go on for a while. It would need to motivate people. There is no traditional meaning to this letter or this symbol in Russian culture. There's nothing about it. But the state used the vast and expansive propaganda network it has to create this symbol as a kind of unifying point to express support for the war effort. Now, this has all become very timely uh, because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but you started researching this book before that. I, I wonder what got you on the path to try and understand how young Russians were perceiving their nation and the ongoing conflict uh, in Ukraine. Well, my background as a researcher is in understanding Russian identity and the ways that Russians have interacted with war propaganda in the past, in particular the ways that they, they take the slogans the narratives, the stories of the state, and begin to identify with them personally. And it really struck me that in the West, we've made the assumption that young people everywhere, especially in the era of the internet, when there is so much information available, are inevitably marching towards becoming liberal Democrats, so they'll somehow find what we see as the truth, understand that truth, and reject the authoritarian narratives of a state like Russia. But we're seeing in Russia that is not exclusively true. There are a great many young Russians, clearly who oppose the regime and are devastated by what's happening in Ukraine and are even acting against the state quite actively. And yet, at the same time, there is a very serious youth movement that is being born, not just out of force put there by the state, but out of voluntary enthusiasm for the state's ideas that supports 
Russian imperialism and Russian expansionism. And where does this enthusiasm come from? What's its source? So the state acts on every level it can. There is an element, of course, of pressure in this. There are the new laws that target people who speak out against the state, who target people who speak out against the war and the army, and they've been used incredibly arbitrarily. There is no rhyme or reason about exactly who is accused of overstepping the boundaries or who is actually punished for saying something that is considered to have overstepped the boundaries. But in addition to the stick, the state uses the carrot and it creates or has created a whole social media world full of sponsored influencers, young people, young celebrities, sports people, musicians who make joining youth movements like the youth army look fun. And they use exactly the same sort of TikTok dances and social media memes, videos, peppy music, a little like we heard in the beginning, to make joining a youth movement that involves militarism and expansionism, imperialism, into something that just all the cool kids in school may be doing. And of course, as I say, they're in the early days of doing this. There is no guarantee that they will manage to transform an entire generation into fascist soldiers. But the seeds are certainly there. Your book is full of these wonderful vignettes and these vivid pen portraits of, of some of these young people. Um, introduce us to some of them. I, I was struck, for instance, by uh, a young 14-year-old called Maria. So I found Maria on TikTok. And TikTok is the big growing social media network among young Russians. Maria is 14. She lives in a provincial Russian town. And she chose to join the youth army. I reached out to her dad and interviewed him about exactly how she got involved with the movement. And he's a pretty ordinary, older millennial kind of Russian dad tries to keep his head down, try and, tries not to get involved with the politics of the state, doesn't really care, was a little surprised when Maria came to him and said, look, Dad, can I join this group? He said yes. She downloaded an app. You can join up online using the app. It's that easy. I did it myself using a fake name, fake identity. And the first thing that she did a day or two after joining the army and receiving her uniform was to go on TikTok and post a video showing how much she was pleased to be a part of the youth army. And since then, she's been regularly posting videos that mix a very ordinary kind of somewhat melodramatic teen diary about boys and breakups, places that she's been in her school life, arguments with her mum, all the normal stuff, alongside posts about her life in the youth army. These two worlds of sort of social media culture, Western consumerism, all the hashtags of hashtag self-realization, hashtag dreams come true, mixing with this world of militarism to a point that it becomes very ordinary to join what is a very extraordinary organization. Now, obviously, this generation is a lot more social media savvy uh, than their parents and their grandparents. But I wonder... In what other ways this, this younger generation compares to the older generations in Russia who lived through World War II, who lived through uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, who lived through the Cold War? Um, how do they differ? 
what we have to understand is that a lot of the media coverage we've seen about young Russians over the last few months has really been about millennials, has really been about people maybe the over the age of 23, 24, 25. Those who remember a time before 2012 when Putin returned to the presidency and for a number of reasons, was spooked by the idea that democracy was coming to Russia and the young people might seek to overthrow him, and instituted this much more draconian approach to dissent and an ideological indoctrination program in schools, put money towards youth groups like the ones we've been talking about. Millennials remember that Russia in the 90s and the 2000s was a place where, generally speaking, you could have any sort of identity you wanted. And of course, it was not easy if you were, for example, a young queer Russian. But the state didn't seek to destroy you, didn't blame you for all the ills of the world, didn't seek to drive you out of the country or to jail you. But when we look at Russians who are a little younger than those millennials, those are Russians who don't remember those liberal and pluralistic dreams. They've grown up in a much more frightening kind of an era where the state has been seeking to actively transform the way they engage with the world. For as long as somebody like Maria, the young youth's army soldier we just described, remembers, Russia has been at war. Ian, I've always thought of Vladimir Putin as a human Y2K bug. He came to power on December the 31st, 1999. That was the time when all of us were fretting about the world's computer networks coming crashing down. And instead... The threat to the world's operating system came in human form, and it was Vladimir Putin. Um, now, I suppose the optimistic take is that when he's gone, and it's worth remembering he's still only 70 years old, that there's a, a more liberal generation uh, that will come to the fore. To read your book is uh, to be disabused of that, that notion. We know from the research that actually when dictators die or dictators are deposed, Usually what we have is a period of total chaos, and there is very little guarantee that a liberal generation will inevitably come to the fore. The obvious comparison is Germany in 1945, when it was thanks to the occupation of Germany and thanks to interference from outside forces that Germany did not collapse in some spectacular kind of civil war, that young Germans were disabused of their notions about the Nazi party and Hitler. Now, of course, there are green shoots in Russia. There are still young Russians who are desperately seeking to oppose Putin. But at the very least, we can say that there is going to be a large section of the population, maybe a majority, maybe not, we just don't know right now, who will have adopted Putin's language of war, of revanchism, of imperial aggression, who will blame the West for the suffering of Russia during this war today? Who will blame traitors within the country for the suffering of Russia? And the fear I have is less that there are no, no anti-Putin young Russians, and more that this, the longer this goes on, the harder and harder it will be for the opposition to find ways to gather around a particular message. The harder it will be for those who oppose Putin to find ways to define Russianness in ways that move beyond the kind of ultra-nationalism that the state is promoting. Ian Garner, thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, Australia's opioid addiction.
Now, if you've undergone surgery in Australia in the last couple of decades, there's a very good chance you were sent home with a prescription for opioid pain relief. And when that prescription was filled, you were probably handed 20 to 25 tablets, which in most cases is a lot more than you were advised to take by your doctor. Medicine cabinets across Australia are filled with unused opioids, and that can lead to accidental addiction and tragically, of course, overdose. Uh, This might sound like fear-mongering, but according to public health experts, opioids kill more Australians than any other drugs. So what can be done to prevent this problem turning into an epidemic, similar to the one seen in America? Dr Jennifer Schumann is the head of the Drug Intelligence Unit at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, and she's just completed a research trip to the United States, Canada, Switzerland and Germany to find out what's worked overseas and what policies might be implemented here in Australia. Um, Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you for having me. Um, How big a problem is it here? Is the word crisis hyperbole or does it accurately reflect uh, the scale of the problem? Well, I guess the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, are we happy with opioids killing a 1,000 Australians every year? Um, These deaths really just represent the tip of the iceberg. There's another 150 hospitalisations every day, 14 emergency department presentations every day involving opioids. And you can, you know, imagine that ripple effect that these these um, overdoses and uh, morbidity and mortality have on the community. So it is a really big problem that can be addressed. I spent a lot of time covering the opioid crisis when I was a, a correspondent in, in America. I spent a lot of time talking to parents whose kids had been prescribed, say, a painkiller for a sports injury. Uh, they got addicted. They moved on to heroin, often because it was cheaper uh, than the prescription drugs. Then, uh, tragically, they overdosed. It, it, it's frightening to hear that that is a problem that, that could be happening here. Is that the sort of thing that's happening? That's right. Well, uh, working, um, looking at coronial deaths, we've seen that these sorts of um, patterns happen in in a number of cases around Australia. But what's really scary to see, I think, is this trajectory that we're following that really mirrors the US trajectory to the opioid epidemic. So we've seen this increase in prescription opioid deaths. And then this has been followed by a a surge in heroin-related deaths in Australia. And this pattern really reflects the first two waves of that opioid epidemic in North America. That was followed by the synthetic opioids with the fentanyls. We haven't seen um, illicit fentanyl um, infiltrate Australia just quite yet, but um, given our proximity to illicit fentanyl manufacturers in Asia, um, given that it's very easily accessible off the dark web, and we have already seen major border seizures in Australia quite recently. Um, So it's a concern and something that um, we really need to stay ahead of. I've seen the effect of fentanyl in American communities. It is absolutely devastating. It's terrifying. It is. Um, you can trace the problem in the States, I think, to the overprescription of opioids, especially in, in the 1990s. Is that a problem here as well? It is. We have seen um, opioid prescribing quadruple over the past decade in Australia, and obviously this has been associated with an increase in addiction and overdose. Um, Most of this, like you said, is post-surgical discharge of opioids. Um, We need to ensure that there's that balance The people who need opioids get them, but they should not be the first-line therapy for for non-cancer chronic pain, especially in the absence of um, physical and other therapies. 
Um, it's a really relatively easy and effective starting point to reduce opioid supply in Australia and really cut off this problem. I think because they're prescription opioids, they're seen as being inherently safe, but this is what's driving our opioid overdose here in Australia, so it needs to be addressed. And what sort of demographics are we talking about here? I mean, in the States, I remember going into some of these hollowed-out communities, these post-industrial towns in the Rust Belt, often you'd see them just scattered with empty syringes. Often it became, to be honest, an indication of whether those communities would support Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Mm. The bigger this problem often, uh, the more support for him. Uh, But then you would go into prosperous suburbs and you'd hear similar stories from from parents who'd who'd lost their kids as well or lost lost loved ones. Um, I mean, what sort of... What sort of demographics is, is this affecting here in Australia? Well, that's the that's the worrying thing, I think, is it, it touches people from all different backgrounds, different ages, males and females. Um, I mean, it's a particular problem regionally. Um, a big part of that is because of the um, treatment gaps, um, really difficult accessing pain and addiction treatment. I mean, this is a problem in cities, but especially in regional towns. Um, but, you know, like you said, we, we see a lot of cases of young people that have been involved in an accident, a car accident or um, or broken bones, started on opioids for acute pain relief, and then have ended up taking these many months later, and that's when it's become a problem. So it's really impacting people from all walks of life um, throughout Australia, um, and that's why it's such a, a problem because it touches so many people. Now, you've embarked on this uh, global search for answers, really. You travelled to Germany to investigate the situation there. Uh, you found that although the country is the second largest consumer of opioids in, in Europe, uh, the rates of dependence and overdose are, are much lower uh, than in North America. Uh, what is Germany getting right? Yeah, that's right. It was really interesting, actually, because they do have these really high prescribing rates, even higher than Australia, but they just don't have the harms associated with opioid misuse that we've seen here in North America. So I think the the main thing that stood out to me in Germany is that it's much, much harder to get opioids there. So they really are a last resort for pain treatment rather than a first-line therapy, and they take a much more holistic approach to pain treatment. So they incorporate physical therapy um, and alternative treatments like herbal remedies. So most GPs in Germany are also trained in um, providing herbal remedies to patients. So that patient expectation, a lot of patients, a lot of people here in Australia expect to get opioids for pain and expect to get sort of longer term treatment of pain for um, chronic non-cancer pain. But um, in Germany, there's just not that expectation. They just do not, you know, they're happier with um, simple drugs like ibuprofen and paracetamol and um, they're just not seeking these much stronger opioids to to treat pain. Where has this expectation come from that you will get these these opioids? Oh, it's a it's a good question. <laughs> I think it's a, a cultural issue. Um, I think that you know this is something that we've seen in other countries as well, like um, France and Italy. It's a problem as well where people walk into a doctor's clinic and expect to walk out with a script. Um, and especially with you know issues with um, sort of structural barriers to treatment, with um, short GP consultations here in Australia and other places. You know, it, understandably, it's very difficult for 
for um, for patients to be treated with pain conditions when they've got a short time to see their GP. There's often, you know, at least a year, two years maybe wait for um, access to pain treatment. And if you're in regional towns, then you know it's it's even more difficult. So it's a it's a structural issue um, in our in our health system as well as it being sort of an issue more at a local level as well. Now, Switzerland's an interesting case study. In the late 1980s and early 90s, it was the centre of the opioid crisis in Europe. Uh, It used to have a very punitive, criminal approach to to drug control. Uh, I understand that's changed. Could, Could you just tell us what they are doing? Because I think they have been having some good results there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like you said, this needle park in Zurich, there were thousands of people who inject drugs gathered in these really large open drug scenes in the city centre. Um, this was associated with a huge spike in crime, in HIV and hepatitis infections, and obviously overdose deaths. So, um, it was in the mid 90s, in 94, that they introduced the Four Pillars drug policy, which was seen at the time as being um, very controversial as well as quite progressive. But they focus on the four pillars being prevention, treatment, harm reduction and law enforcement. So um, perhaps the most controversial aspect of the harm reduction um, pillar was introducing the supervised drug consumption facility. So keeping in mind this is back in the mid-90s, so they've been doing it for a long time. Um, they introduced drug checking services so people knew that they could, you know, so that they could take their drugs to sites so that they knew what they were taking so that could be tested. They introduced um, low-threshold social support in these um, local government social workers called the SITSURI, and they really expanded um, opioid agonist treatment for people with opioid use disorder. So they removed a lot of the treatment barriers. They removed the goal of abstinence for treatment and they began prescribing heroin. So to people who, this small proportion of people who don't respond well to traditional um, opioid agonist treatment. And a big mindset shift uh, towards thinking of this as a a health problem rather than a criminal problem. In the time we've got left, just give us the pillars of a policy in Australia that could work? Uh, Well, I think there's, um, you know, some relatively small and inexpensive but um, really highly effective strategies that we could implement here in the short term, like drug checking. Um, we can expand our existing approaches um, in in the context of, you know, supervised drug consumption facilities, offer heroin to those people who are um, treatment resistant to um, traditional forms of opioid agonist treatment. Um, and at a higher level, we need, really need to expand our prevention and treatment programs and reduce those structural barriers to treatment. We have seen what happened in Switzerland after they introduced these policies and focused on addiction as, as a public health issue, rather than a law enforcement issue. Um, You know, the drug market stabilised, overdose deaths decreased by over 60%. Mm. Infectious diseases decreased, drug-related crimes decreased by over 80%. So we really saw, they really saw a a huge increase in public health and safety and and that's what can happen if we look at it as a public health issue. Dr Jennifer Schumann, thank you so much for giving us uh, your insights into that problem. Um, Up next on Saturday Extra, the final episode of the zeitgeist drama, Succession. Well, in the opening scene, we saw an old man staggering around a darkened room in the middle of the night who ends up urinating on the carpet. That's how the world was introduced to Logan Roy, 
the domineering media mogul, played so brilliantly by the actor Brian Cox in the hit TV show Succession. The HBO series was partly inspired by an Australian family, the Murdochs, and features a sprawling media empire, including the right-wing news channel ATM, which is modelled on Fox News. It's widely seen as one of the finest TV dramas that has ever been put to air. And with us to discuss it on the eve of the final episode are James Ponowozik, a TV critic with the New York Times, and Felix Salmon of the news site Axios, who presents a podcast on succession. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great pleasure. The writing, the acting, uh, those beautiful shots of helicopters swooping through the skies above Manhattan, all of the above. James, what is it that has made Succession such a success? You, you mentioned the acting, and that's a great place to start. I mean, it's a fantastically written show. It is a timely show. It's a funny show. But you can't let go of the fact that, you know, there, there are six, eight, ten people in the cast who would be the best actor on any other show. Uh, and, you know, and and they're just just battling it out with each other uh, every other week. But, you know, l- l- listen, I, I, I think it, it goes to the fact that, you know, sagas of rich people problems have always been a re- reliable source uh, of fascination on TV. And this is a very rarefied version of that that I think really, really speaks to our time and to the rich people of our time. Felix, for the uninitiated, for those who haven't seen the show, we should quickly explain the the driving narrative. It's a sort of Game of Thrones scenario in the modern day, right in the moment, really. Who is going to end up on the Iron Throne? Who is going to end up running the media empire? The dirty secret of Succession is that nothing ever actually happens in Succession. The third season began with this cliffhanger of who was going to win this proxy fight, and it ended with this cliffhanger of who is going to end this proxy win the win the proxy fight. Right? Like it's one of those shows which you watch for the deliciousness of the one-liners, and as James says, for the acting and for just the unbelievably dark humor behind it all, much more than you do for the plot, because the number of major things that have happened in the plot over four seasons is really surprisingly small. It really is a wonderful ensemble piece. Brian Cox, brilliant as Logan Roy. The Australian actress Sarah Snook, superb as the daughter Shiv. And and there's one scene that I think has become particularly iconic, a balcony scene. It's filmed at a penthouse in Manhattan where Shiv is arguing with her husband, Tom, who's played by Matthew McFadden. Let's hear a clip of that now. Can I just say something? At this party here, there are maybe 40 of the most important people in America and you have just walked all around all evening telling them all that I'm going to get fired. No, it was implied lightly as a little... Part of a tactical kind of joke. Will you explain to me uh, the joke? Because I don't get the f***ing joke. I don't get the joke. It was something that he said that isn't true that we needed to say. But you stood by his side and he said it and you were like, okay, well, that sounds good to me. I'm not doing this right now. It's pretty hard to find a bit of uh, succession without swear words in it, actually. Um, (laughs) But you get a flavour of how sharp the writing is, how good the acting is. And and that scene gets worse, you know, by which I mean it gets better. It is just the most painfully vicious marital fight I've seen on TV, I think, since Tony and Carmela went at it on The Sopranos, maybe. And, I mean, one thing that I learned from listening to your show, Felix, was, was the writing happens 
almost up to the the actual take on set. You've got these writers who are kind of furiously writing away, just improving on scripts that are already brilliant. The writing is very much in the moment. And some of it is improvised. But also I think one of the things that is worth mentioning here is how half of the writers are English, the showrunner is English, the tradition of this show comes out of the Armando Iannucci in the loop, the thick of it, all of those kind of shows, which um, the English have always done very well. And of course, the Veep, which came out of that tradition as well. And that little clip that you played reminded me very much of the great English movie Withnell and I, where the eponymous Withnell is confronted and, he, and he's like, oh, this was a calculated risk. And these kind of things are very familiar to the Brits, and I think it's wonderful that the Americans are embracing it as, as much as they are. Now, all great shows have an almost fetishistic attention detail, and, and that's certainly true of Succession. I mean, Felix, you're actually the chief financial correspondent of Axios, <laughs> which is kind of curious that you, you're running this podcast on, on Succession, but it is all about the super rich. And I understand the show actually has a wealth consultant they have a wealth consultant. They have business consultants. When you know, when there are proxy fights or people are talking about the share price or the leverage or that kind of stuff, it actually makes sense. There's an internal consistency to it. But yeah, this is why you never see any of them carrying bags or even like wearing overcoats. Because if you're that rich, you just get sort of ferried from one climate-controlled area to another climate-controlled area, and the weather never really impinges on you. And if you notice, that fight on the balcony took place outdoors in November on on the eve of the election in New York City when, by rights, it should have been freezing, but they're both wearing basically nothing, you know, just shirt sleeves, because... Weather does not affect you when you're rich. And one thing that's noticeable, they never duck when they get in a helicopter. If ever you're jumping in a helicopter, you see a lot of people ducking. If you're super rich, you know that the blades aren't going to sort of decapitate you. And if you're one of the three main children in the show, Siobhan, Kendall and Roman, you never eat. You never see them putting food in their mouths. (laughs) James? It is amazing. My wife and I, when we watch the show, have a running joke just about it. It it is amazing how it sometimes seems like 90% of succession is people moving from one vehicle to another. The limo to the helicopter to the plane. And help me understand this paradox. I reckon that a lot of people who would have enjoyed seeing Fox News and Rupert Murdoch run into trouble over the Dominion voting machines lawsuit and the misinformation that Fox News was pumping out after the 2020 presidential election are precisely the same people who love the show and maybe have a sneaking admiration for Logan Roy. At heart, succession is a rich people's soap. It's about rich people fighting over control of a company, which was the premise of Dallas 40 years ago. Uh, But, you know, those those earlier sort of very populist, uh, very widely watched shows like like Dallas, like Dynasty, were a very sort of populistly like aspirational view of wealth. Uh, It was a fantasy of, you know, the way that you might like to live if you won the lottery. Whereas Succession is, is, it is a very sort of rarefied picture of hyper wealth today in which the spaces aren't luxurious so much as they're antiseptic. It's a kind of wealth 
that requires a certain sort of cultural accreditation even to appreciate. Uh, and therefore, it is it is targeted at a, a more niche kind of viewer. James, I think during the Trump years especially, we saw a lot of dystopian drama. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale, the adaptation of Margaret Atwood's haunting novel, The Plot Against America, the adaptation of Philip Roth's novel, uh, which yeah. imagines America becoming a dictatorship. I wonder whether we can talk now about a kind of new genre, which is a kind of declinist drama. I mean, this is all about political polarisation. It's all about the destabilisation of democracy. It's about the impact of media empire pumping out misinformation. It's a family saga, but in many ways, it's a story as well about American decline. It's, you know, and very specifically in the final season of the show, a, a show that's set against the backdrop of basically the country falling apart in a very familiar way during an election. And from the vantage point of people who are extremely insulated from the consequences of their actions and also have lost pretty much any sense of noblesse oblige that, you know, an earlier version of them might have had. Uh, that that might have, you know, given them some sense of responsibility, uh, you know, to 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 keep <laughs> the social fabric together. Um, so, yes, it is it is, you know, I, you know, I think very much in a sense like the 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 sort of inside story of decline and a declining nation. But, you know, told from well inside a lavishly equipped panic room. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Uh, Felix, I mean, it is a classic case of art imitating life, right? There's this wonderful line in the ninth episode of season four where the Swedish tech billionaire turns to Siobhan, the daughter, and says, I'm just saying you are nearly as mature a democracy as Botswana. <laughs> and it kind of hits home because it's it's not wrong, right? And it is this, as James says, it's this kind of curdled vision of aspirational TV where, on the one hand, it's not not aspirational. It still has all of the indicia of wealth and success, but it's also deeply immature on every single conceivable level, and it is an indictment of where America is, for sure. Yeah, that line struck me because it is absolutely true. America got universal suffrage in, in 1965. It's as recent as that. That was when black Americans in the South were finally uh, allowed to vote, unfettered. It is a new democracy. We often think of it as an old one. Felix, I was listening to you the other day, and you said you watch it as tragedy, and then on reflection, it becomes comedy. I confess I watch it a different way. I find myself laughing out loud during it. But afterwards, I find it sort of deeply unsettling. Um, just talk to me about how, how you view it. So the, the, one of the great new things about the way we all watch television these days is subtitles. Everyone watches everything with subtitles, and the only people who don't watch everything with subtitles are TV critics like me and James who get screeners that don't have subtitles. And so while everyone else is watching with subtitles and getting the jokes immediately, James and I are watching it without subtitles, and the, the line readings don't really underscore the cleverness of the lines and how funny they are. And 
when you're trying, when you're immersed in the drama, sometimes you miss what they're actually saying. And for someone like me, who can be a bit slow on the uptake, I need to, re- I need to watch it a second time to realize just how cutting and how hilarious many of those lines are. And that's when something that feels tragic the first time around can just become deeply and darkly comic the second time around. I wonder, in conclusion, where would you rank succession in the pantheon of great television? James, you first of all. Well, it hasn't finished yet, <laughs> right? But, um, <laughs> you know, so... So that you know, so that that's tricky. If I were a person who made numbered lists, um, I don't know if I would say it's like a, a, a top five or a top ten show for me yet. It, it needs a little time to age in my mind before I think I would I would put it there. Could be top twenty, top thirty, top forty. Uh, there's been a lot of great TV, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, but. Um, it's certainly a top 100 show for me and probably high up in that top 100. Felix? Oh, definitely top five because it has the the tragedy and the complexity of something like The Wire along with the humour of something like Fleabag. And you put those two together and I can't think of anything that comes close. Fleabag had the tragedy of the wire, though, and, and the wire could be, could be very funny. I mean, I, th- I think that's, that, you know, it's absolutely true. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's just a lot of TV history to measure it against. I think I'd put it in my top two. That high, James Ponowozik, a TV critic with the New York Times. Felix Salmon of the news site Axios, who presents a wonderful podcast on succession. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, for me, it's still Tony Soprano uh, with Logan Roy of Succession coming up on the rails. Uh, We're living through a golden era of television. I hope you've enjoyed the last 90 minutes of radio as well. I'm Nick Bryan. It's been such a pleasure to work with the team. Belinda Summer, Isabel Summerson, Jesse Kay and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. Geraldine Duke is back next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.